Hi, I'm Mark Chavez. I'm one of the hosts of Let's Make a, a comedy docuseries podcast about the creative process. Each season, my co-hosts, Ryan Beal, Maddie Kelly, and I, take on an artistic challenge and you follow our journey. In Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we wrote a science fiction TV pilot. In Let's Make a Rom-Com, we wrote a romantic comedy film. And on our latest season, Let's Make a Horror, we produced a horror short film. And when we run into trouble, we interview Hollywood experts. People who have worked on big things like The Blair Witch Project, The Office, Star Wars, Mamma Mia, and more. All three seasons of Let's Make a are available now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. It is Monday, November 7th. Welcome to Q. What's up? This is Robert Glasper. Hey, I'm Tennille Towns. Hi, I'm Tommy Adiemi, and you're listening to Q. And you're listening to Q. And you're listening to Q with Tom Power. The playwright Yolanda Bennell loves this quote from the film Steel Magnolias. Laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. And this feeling cuts through Yolanda's play My Sister's Rage, which is a story about a family dealing with death and old memories that surface in times of grief, but how grief isn't just one thing. And when you're going through it, Sometimes you can't help but laugh. That's coming up. Plus, if you're a fan of Celine Dion, the Quebecois legend has just announced a couple of projects in the works for the next year. Not only is there new music, but Celine's headed to the big screen in a new romantic comedy. So we thought it was a good time to revisit our conversation with Celine Dion. All that and more coming up on Q. morning welcome to the show um loss and grief hit you hard and if you've experienced anything like a loss or or a tragedy i mean who hasn't really um i don't need to tell you that that it hits hard right and a new play looks at the hurt and tears that grief brings but if you're stopping yourself right now and reaching for the dial and going oh my god cbc delivering up a lovely monday sadness this play is actually about how it's okay to laugh and how you find yourself laughing when you go through unimaginable grief, unimaginable tragedy, how oftentimes you can't help but laugh through it. My Sister's Rage is by Yolanda Bennell. They're an acclaimed playwright famous for works like Bug and White Girls and Moccasins. Yolanda mines stories from their own life in My Sister's Rage, which is the story of a family whose matriarch falls into a coma. The adults head to the hospital. The cousins camp out at the grandmother's fire pit. And the grief forces the family to face an old trauma, one that never healed. But, like I said, it's about so much more. It's about, sure, how how old memories come up when there's a tragedy in the family. But it's also how, again, sometimes you can't help but find yourself laughing to get through it. My Sister's Rage just wrapped up a successful run at the Tarragon Theater in Toronto last night. But the digital version of the play is coming soon for all of Canada. In the meantime, to talk about their new play, Yolanda Bennell joined me in our studio. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Nice to have you here. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks to be here. Um, I heard that this uh, play started as, you described it as a love letter to the indigenous mm. women in your life. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really just wanted to talk about the complicated and complex women in my own life growing up, um, which I think over the course of my career, I've noticed that a lot of my stories are universal. Um, and so when thinking about giving this, you know, gift or love letter to my aunties, my cousins, my mom, my sisters, my kin, it was really to show how universal those kinds of relationships are. Um, 
I wanted to bring in stories uh, that I experienced growing up with my family on the res. Uh, a lot of the scenes in the play are directly taken from experiences I've had with my cousins and my aunties and my own grandmother. Any, any you're comfortable talking to me about? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Like, like what? Um, so <laughs> there's a scene where one of the young cousins gets high for the first time. Uh, and that is actually the story of how I got high for the first time was with my cousins while my grandmother was in a coma. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> because as young people, as youth, uh, the way I think we handle grief is different, right? And and so I, I, as, a, as a teenager, I didn't fully, I think, understand, you know, what um, her life hanging in the balance really meant or yeah. how to deal with it. And so while we were all camped out in my grandmother's house in her backyard, all the all my all of our moms and aunties were at the hospital. So that whole uh, convention of the play is something that was actually just picked up from my real life. The the what I'm hearing there is that like there, there was something very specific you were writing about here, like your own experience yeah. and the experience of the people. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Fort William First Nation near Thunder Bay, Ontario. And and you, the people the people you loved there, and then you start to realize that this is a, a bigger, more universal yes. story, and maybe something a bit more general. Generational of a story. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it started as little anecdotes and like little scenes, and then it just built and sort of became about this family. And like, none of the characters are actually based on anybody I know. Yeah, don't worry, know? don't write in. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> My cousin's calling me up. How dare you? No, I. <laughs> they're not based on anybody in particular. It's the experiences, some of the names maybe, um, and some of the energies, but. But no specific character is based on anyone from my family. But yeah, I, I, I think it just grew and became about this family, this in particular family that that um, whose story needed to be told. And when you have when you when you have a death in your life, and when and that's traumatic to have a death in your life, it it brings back old traumas. Absolutely, from when you were around, from when you weren't around. Yeah, traumas you don't even know about, can, and can sometimes even heal them. Like they can, it can have these things were on your mind when you were writing this. Absolutely, thing. yeah. Um, I th from my own experience, and I think for a lot of Indigenous people, we experience death quite often. Um, our life expectancy is shorter due to, to, to the effects of ongoing effects of colonization. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I grew up, I, people were dying around me all the time. I, I remember my great-grandmother's funeral when I was really quite, quite young. Um, and we had aunties and uncles, people just all the time we were at funerals. Um, so for me, death was something I experienced a lot, but it didn't mean I understood it. Um, and I didn't quite know how to talk about it. And so I think... When when I was writing this, I was thinking about how this generational idea of like how older people deal with death versus younger people dealing with death and and grief and, and what that does to our relationships with each other yeah. and and how it can bring up old wounds and and things from the past or like this is the last time we saw each other was at that person's funeral or this person's funeral. And when there's a big, deep grief in a family it can't help but surface when uh, a new grief is coming up because it's still kind of hanging out there, especially if it hasn't been dealt with. You feel like you never get to know your family as well as you do when someone dies. Yeah. Right? I find that too. Absolutely. I think people are at their most vulnerable. They're at their most raw. And because, and this is evident in the play, 
when the closer we are to 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 death to that passing over onto the other plane of existence you know that veil gets thinner things start to happen and i mean this is a this is a belief thing if, if some people don't believe that but for me it's very real like i can see you know the closer somebody comes to death that it just it's thin and thin and thin there's nothing left and you can see through you know you can see through that veil and you can see things start to happen and um, and that's very evident in the play is when ancestors show up or um, the feeling of those worlds kind of crashing into each other. People, when my grandmother was dying, she kept seeing spiders on the wall. Wow. Like, you know, and I know other people, like uh, people close to death have seen things or heard things and they react, you know. Yeah. We, I mean, I'm sure there are scientific reasons for that. But for me, it's just like that. It's that idea of that veil getting thinner. Um, and us seeing through to the other worlds that are coming through. Is that what the – because I was reading the, your director's note to this show and, and it, the word portals mm -hmm. kept on coming up, which is a very like attractive word by the way. <laughs> yeah. Like it is – it's sort of a nice, lovely like video gamey sci-fi yeah. <laughs> Word, but when I read it, I was quite touched by it. Can you can you talk about portals mm -hmm. in, in 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 relation to this work? Yeah, so there's a lot of doorways in the in the set design, um, and there was this idea that I wanted to do where they're they're, they're constantly circling. Uh, there's going to the hospital, there's coming back from the hospital, there's going to the hospital, there's coming back from the hospital. And so there's the doorway into the house, and the, to the backyard, and then there's the doorway into the hospital room, yeah. and then everything else in between. Um, and so for me, I kept looking at it as, the, as performers would walk through a doorway or disappear behind a tree or disappear behind a flat, that there are these portals that they're walking through where time and space shift. Um, and so with this idea of these worlds sort of kind of ble bleeding into each other, blending into each other, the same way we have access to those worlds is through these portals. Uh, so every time they walk through a door, uh, something, you know, something happens. They're, in a, they're, they're, they're entering into a different space, which sounds, I know, simple. Yes, of course, you walk through a door, you're in a different you're space. You're in the kitchen, you go to the living room, you're in a different exactly. space. You're outside, you go inside, you're in a different right. space. Yeah. And it, for this, it's about how the space shifts and, and transcends time. So if they walk through a doorway coming into the hospital, when they leave the hospital and when we see them walk the back line, it doesn't necessarily mean that was the same day they were in the hospital. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. Because the idea of loss of time happens when you're waiting in a hospital. You don't know what time it is. You mm -hmm. don't know how long you've been there. Yeah. You just know that you're waiting. It's a liminal space, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. And so that sort of idea of of time being lost and doorways and portals of walking through those those spaces um, and time shifting as soon as you walk through that that portal. So for me, it was just about like how we access these different worlds and planes of existence. I mean, I, for, forgive me for misunderstanding something here too, but like I heard you in the, I heard you in your director's note and talk a little bit about how you 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 interact with your ancestors mm -hmm. in in your real life. You know, mm -hmm. it might be a gust of wind. It might be you know, are the are these portals as well, or are these like, or can you? I think they use portals to interact. Um, I don't know what those portals are because yeah. I'm not in that world, but yeah. I would, I would, it would stand to reason that, um, there would be a doorway 
are something, right? And when it's the kind of like when I talk about that veil getting thin, I think it's the veil to the doorway. It's that yeah. it's that way of of entering and exiting, right? Um, and when we um, exit our physical form, yeah. um, there's a, a doorway to spirit world, which is a, a, a common indigenous belief in, among many nations. Um, and so in spirit world is where our ancestors live. And they can traverse those planes however they need to. Uh, and so I, I do feel like they do traverse those planes and I do feel them and see them yeah. and they do presence themselves to me uh, in yeah. many different ways. And I, I think that a lot of my work and a lot of my healing has come from how I learn to interpret their messages and learn to work with them. That's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. Let me let me reintroduce you here. My guest is Yolanda Bennell, the award-winning playwright. We're talking about their latest piece, My Sister's Rage. Um, there is uh, loss and sadness and real trauma in this play. The family, as you mentioned, is mourning the loss of a missing and murdered child from a few years past. Now the matriarch of the family is on her deathbed. I, I caught you out of the corner of my eye while I was introducing you. And I said, there's a lot of sadness and there's a lot of trauma and there's a lot of stillness when it comes to losing somebody mm-hmm. but my god there's like it's, it's, it's hard to talk about mm-hmm. but we've all been there mm-hmm. anyone who's actually gone through a loss has been there there's a lot of laughter there is lots of laughter <laughs> yeah yeah one of my favorite quotes is from steel magnolia yeah uh where um the character truvi says laughter through tears is my favorite emotion and that encapsulate for me encapsulates the feeling of of grief uh, when you know when you're reminiscing about somebody or when you're in these moments of sadness deep sadness but then you start talking about them and you start remembering things that they did or things they said ridiculous things that they did, said or did and and you're laughing while you're crying you know that's just a deep laugh yeah, yeah it's coming it comes from a real it comes from a place of like uncontrollable you know you can't help it um and those two emotions sort of happening at the same time is something i was really interested in and it is one of my favorite things favorite emotions to feel or go through because it cuts it cuts through something uh and it it is it opens the door the portal yeah. for healing uh it allows uh for um you know to talk about things to express how you're feeling it allows for connection uh for memory and every time we talk about our ancestors or talk about someone who's passed or bring up their name we presence them we presence them in the space but every time we say their name they they're there right because you are talking about them and you're you're remembering them you're seeing them in your head you're picturing them so they're there so it's i think that that it's a really important thing to offset the deep sadness that grief can bring with humor and native people have been doing that for years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you t- I've heard you talk about how I mean, your 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 aunts would get together, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you have this memory of them at the kitchen table, roaring, laughing. Yeah, all the time, all the time. Especially at my grandmother's house. Like, we would go to my grandma's house, and my auntie Rocky, who lived like down the road, just like uh, just across the the backyard. And she would come stomping down, the, <laughs> stomping down the road, little path, in her like house dress and kerchief, and 
And there was no one like her in the world. She always told these ridiculous jokes and had this loud, like, laugh that was so unique. And I come from a family of loud, laughing women. And we would, like, they would just sit around the table and, and I don't know, talk and laugh and joke and drink coffee. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, think, and it wasn't just, it was so many, so many times at so many different tables. And considering all of the, yes, ongoing grief, but ongoing trauma, of of you know what it means to be indigenous in in contemporary Canada and live on a reservation, um, despite all of all of that, it was it, it was imperative that we were laughing. It was imperative that we found humor in those traumatic moments and in that grief and in that hardship. Why? It's survival. Survival. Yeah, it's how we've survived this long. Um, is being able to turn these hard things yeah. into humor, into something we can work with, into something we can heal from. In the same way that, you know, when I said grief, uh, it opens the doorway, the portal to healing. That's what it is. It's, it's laughter is medicine. Laughter is healing. It's, it's how we um, have to heal ourselves. Yeah. I, I thought that was very intentional. I don't mean to be reading too much into you, but yeah. in your director's note, you, 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 I thought you were kind of saying that like, Hey, I think you might think, you know, what this play is going to be about. Yeah. You may think, you know, that this play is about, you're hearing that this play is about a missing and, and murdered mm -hmm, child. Mm -hmm. This is a, a play about, about trauma. You are going to think, you know, what this play is about, but I want you to laugh at it. Yeah. That felt that felt intentional to yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, there's this I think a, a conception, like this idea of what Indigenous theater is or Indigenous storytelling can be, or yeah. um, and often they're trauma narratives. Like yeah. a lot of the time, it's trauma narratives, um, and not that there is not trauma present in this play. Obviously, there is, yeah. but it's about how we talk about it and um, how we show it. Um, and I didn't want it to be so focused on the trauma. The play isn't about Andrea, who is the missing uh, and murdered uh, child, like that is a part of the story. It's really about them. It's about these, about this family and their emotions and their feelings and how they deal with it. And then cutting through that with this laughter and how, and, and really hitting home the message of how laughter is medicine and how we absolutely need it. Have you, maybe this is a good way to close, like have you, I, I understand now um, the sort of the impetus of the play, like where it came from and, and what you might want audiences to get from it. Have you grown through the writing of this play? Absolutely. I, how could I not? <laughs> how could I not? Yeah, I, I mean, the truth is this is, this play was the, the fastest I've ever written anything in my life. Uh, it came together so quickly um, and it's surprising me. And I've learned so much about not just how I view like grief and how I've always sort of viewed it and viewed death and how and what's been happening. But I also learned through watching some of these experiences that that were my experiences and watching other people kind of reenact my life. <laughs> Uh, oh, wow, yeah. I've learned about moments um, that I didn't realize I was tapping into or like answers to questions that I had when I was a teenager, when my grandmother was sick. I, I, I found some of those answers. Um, so that was really surprising to me. The other thing that, uh, that I realized was 
um, there's a point in the play where Wanda, the 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 character is like a crow spirit in the form of a human. Cracking jokes. Cracking jokes. Kind of like your Aunt, Aunt Rocky. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she she talks about how sometimes our ancestors are young. And I mean, it's it's a nod to to Andrea, the the daughter. But I didn't realize when I was watching, and, and it was something that recently happened where it had hit me that when my uncle, my seventeen year old uncle, drowned went yeah. before I was born, and I didn't realize how present he was in this piece um, until I was watching it, and then I was like, oh, like it was a realization. So there's definitely things that I've learned or grown through learning about my own experiences and how I look at things and how other people approach it, like how the cast approached these um, complexities and these complex characters and the emotions and things that they were going through and how sometimes it was different from my own thoughts. So what a gift to be able to loved that. What a gift to be able to to live through your own experiences to other people enacting them for you. Yeah. What was your grandmother's name? Teresa. What was your uncle's name? Ricky. Wow, it's, it's, it's lovely to hear about them, and it's lovely to hear about this show. Congratulations on it. Miigwech. Thank you so much. Yolanda Bennell is an award-winning playwright whose latest work, My Sister's Rage, just ended its run at the Tarragon Theater in Toronto. And if you're going to yourself, Tom, why are you talking to me about a show in Toronto? Because I don't live in Toronto. I can't see it. Uh, well, check this out. You can watch a digital version of this play online starting November 16th. No matter where you are in Canada, go to the Tarragon Theatre website for more details. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name's Tom Power. Coming up on the show, you're going to hear from the director of this play that's getting a lot of attention. It's called Choir Boy, which is set in an elite black prep school. It tells the story of the school star gospel singer. It's getting a lot of attention. You're going to hear from the director and coming up in just a second. But first, it would have been just over a year since Celine Dion announced uh, that she would be delaying her Las Vegas residency for health reasons. Months after that announcement, she canceled the North American leg of her Courage Tour. And all this left you wondering about her recovery and wondering whether she might go back on stage. So late last week, Celine Dion shares a bit of good news. She isn't ready to do music quite yet, but she'll be playing herself in a new romantic comedy, which is called Love Again, and it stars Priyanka Chopra, Jonas, and Outlander star Sam Hewen. Celine will also be releasing new music in support of the film. So yeah, still music, no live performance, but some new Celine Dion music. So it brought us back to a conversation we had with Celine Dion back in 2019 when her album Courage first came out. We flew to Montreal uh, to talk to Celine. And in that conversation, I asked her what that word courage meant to her. And here's what she had to say. Um, Everybody is going through um, things in life. Um, Things that we have to... uh, 
I would say when something bad happens to you in life, you have to find a way to overcome these obstacles and find a way to find inner strength to say that's part of life. This is not something that you choose. This is something that is imposed to you by life. And it's up to you to go through uh, these obstacles. And you have the options if you're going to need help or not, mm. or how you're going to go through this. Yeah. Uh, and we all do have good time, good moments and, and bad mom- moments, and we all lose people. And saying that, uh, losing um, the father of my children, um, um, my husband, my manager, um, the person that I love the most um, in the world, and um, the person that I can rely upon and without questioning anything since I'm 12 years old. Um, losing that person was a big deal on me, but it, refl- it reflected on a lot of people that I've been, that I've been surrounded by for 20 years and more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we are still uh, missing him tremendously, believe it mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the eyes of my children, and the fact that when one song came among many that was called Courage. Courage, don't you dare fail me now. I need you to keep away the doubts. It strikes pretty hard um, emotionally, but it could have been like a song that was didn't mean anything or it's a good title. Yeah. But it's not enough. Not only it's a good title, but I don't think a song could have been written more appropriately than this one at this time of my life, taking charge of my inner strength, of my, the visions that I have, my creativity, being spontaneous, being crazy. It, It takes courage. It takes courage because I'm a single mom, yeah. Um, and I don't want to, me first, my kids, my entourage, the people that I love, to feel that because I have lost the man of my life, yeah. that, that I'm going to lose the essence of what I love, my passion. And I really believe that through all the years with Renee, who gave me so much, who taught me so much, who gave me so much luggage, that when he left um, for his new chapter, a new, his new life, he gave me the rest of his luggage. Mm-hmm. And I feel him through the eyes of my kids and Inside of me, I felt very, very, very strong, probably stronger than ever before, mm-hmm. because I make decisions 
and I'm not scared. Before I was not part of meetings. It was, yeah. Renee was really, I don't want to say overprotecting me, but he was protecting me a lot because he wanted me to just, you sing the best you can. Yeah, I want you to enjoy. And I will, you don't need to do this. So did you have to learn how to do that? Did you have to learn how to become a different I'm person? I'm still learning. Yeah, what did you it's have to learn? learn? It's a learning process. Like, like what? what did you, I'm just curious. Well, to zip it once in a while and let the people talk mm-hmm. because <laughs> I feel like I have to talk for Renee mm-hmm. on behalf of Renee. Yeah. I have to talk for me yeah. and I talk a lot. Mm-hmm. Like right now, yeah, I do mind. talk a lot. A I don't show. let you finish so. the questions. Yeah. <laughs> I can even ask my own questions and answer my questions. Uh, I left for about 10 minutes there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, like, it's like learning that... Um, the best is yet to come, and that, you know what, I don't want that to sound pretentious, but I am courageous. You are, and I hope you know that that courage you give, and I, I hope you know this, that all I could think when I listened to that Courage song was how many people, I've gone through you know, losses in my family as well, how many of us need Sorry. that song, you know? How many of us need that moment? How many of us need, how, and I hate to put this burden on you, but how your courageousness or your courage can help so many people. I mean, I, I know that's not lost on you. Well, I appreciate it, and if only that is what I need to do to go on stage and sing that song to help people, yeah. I will do this for the rest of my life. I would be lying if I said I'm fine I think of you at least a hundred times Cause in the echo of my voice I hear your words Just like you there I still come home from a long day So much to talk about, so much to say I love to think that we're still making plans In conversations that'll never Isn't that beautiful? Celine Dion's 2019 single, Courage. Before that, you heard a bit of my conversation with Celine from back then. My God, I'd love a chance to talk to her again when all this new stuff comes out because she just announced she'll be uh, playing herself in a new movie. She's also going to be putting out new music. Uh, The film, by the way, she'll be in is called Love Again, starring Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Sam Hewen. Love Again comes out in May. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Take a listen to this. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's an old um, spiritual song, sometimes called Hold On, sometimes called The Gospel Plow. And and the lyrics there are what you need to listen to there. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on, no matter what. It's a theme that runs through a play called Choir Boy, which is set in an elite black prep school. It tells the story of a school choir star singer. He's a teenager wrestling with his sexuality, his identity as a young black man. It was written 10 years ago by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who also wrote a play called Moonlight that went on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. Now, Choir Boy opens tomorrow night in Toronto. It'll be coming to Vancouver next season. Mike Payette is directing it for a Canadian stage. He's the artistic director of the Tarragon Theatre. And I'm delighted to say that Mike joins me now. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Thanks for, thanks for making the time. So you've done this play before, right? 
Yeah, I um, was part of the, essentially the Canadian premiere, which was in Montreal in 2018 at Centaur Theatre. And so it's uh, almost four years uh, to the to the month. I mean, it's not often that people take on uh, shows again. Why did you want to Why did you want to direct it again? I think you're totally right, Tom. I mean, usually the the invitation is like in a revival situation or a touring production, but it's often uh, an anomaly, a little bit of a gift to actually conceive a whole new production. Um, and so, you know, similarly to the first time, I mean, Terrell's text is so rich. Um, the the themes within the the play and what he's investigating continue to be resonant as they as as they were uh, you know ten years ago and so again that that opportunity to delve back into the music to look at this play within the lens of how we're living today and so much has changed uh, in the past four years in terms of our you know social backdrop and when it comes to the themes of of blackness and queerness and even masculinity you know there's a, a deep dive uh, investigation that is. Uh, really 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 awesome um for for a director to to revisit and so for all of those reasons i was like yeah great you mentioned it so blackness and queerness and masculinity there i I did my best to like try to give a somewhat of a cole's notes of the plot there in the introduction can you can you fill in the blanks there like just give a a brief little summary about what the show's about yeah tom i mean you hit all of the major sort of larger um you know, parts of of this piece. But yeah, this intersectionality between, you know, uh, what it means to be a young black queer uh, uh, man who's in this sort of institution, the Charles R. Drew, which is inspired by so many um, like-minded, you know, uh, boarding schools or prep schools in in the States. And it really does center around this institution where there there are these five uh, young black men who are all navigating in one way, shape, or form, their their positionality within within the school as it relates to all of the things that they're aspiring to be. So you playing Hold On is a perfect example. It's like, how can you be your uh, authentic self or find your own voice within the circumstances that are, um, you know, afforded you or, or the sort of limitations that an institution like this uh, might provide? And so it really is a sort of coming of age of not just uh, Ferris, who is the lead, but all five of these uh, these young men who are just again trying to exist and survive within the confines of 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 what it means to be a black young black uh 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 in today's society you're the director of the show so i know you're sort of in it like i know you're sort of in it and it's hard to stick to, to watch it like to step step away from it a little bit but when you first encountered this play i wonder if you could give us a moment in the play that really like moved you that really stood out to you there's a really great uh, scene where uh, Ferris, who is the, the the choir lead, and his dorm mate AJ, they share this really awesome relationship, this sort of side story, and um, you know, an event. I won't you know give too much away, but something happens in in the dorm room that sort of uh, complicates the relationship and the the navigation of of AJ Ferris's dorm mate to you know in becoming you know, essentially what it means to be a conduit or an ally and true support and show love and brotherly love. You know, it's it's something that we don't necessarily talk uh, talk too much about. It's quite taboo, the notion of like uh, black male love uh, in, within the sense of brotherhood. And that was, some, that was something that I really, really gripped uh, onto because, uh, because it shows this possibility of what it means to understand through uh, and to support through empathy. Um, I think that's that's one particular moment, but I would say quite largely, 
um it's the score it's the it's the actual music the backdrop of this play the the uh, the influence of spirituals and gospel which really navigate the the whole narrative of this play and the uh the balance of um hyper realism within the scenes with uh, deep deep poetry and lyricism um just a, you know sort of evokes theatricality and a, a connection to something greater you know a spiritual connection if you if you will through theatricality I want to go back to something you said there. You know, you said that the the play, and I don't mean to misquote you here, but the play, um, you know, one, one of the things is it does is it shows a model of of true um, empathy, of true support through understanding what someone else is is going through. And you also said earlier that the meaning of this play has changed in the. I think it's been four years since you did it last, right? Four years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And and Terrell Alvin McCraney, who we've talked to in the show before, I think he did this. He wrote this ten years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you can so, you ta- can you talk more about that? Like what what has changed since the? Well, I, when he when he originally wrote this, you know, this was during you know in the context of the states. This was during the Obama era as well, you know. So the. You know, especially within Black communities where there was such possibility and um, and, and hope and an actual uh, uplifting of, of so many voices that were just not heard. Um, and so we know, you know, since then, even before the 28, uh, 2018 production, you know, the, the, you know, the system, the government had changed and the outlook had complete, has complete, was completely different. But even in the, the, the four years since that production, you know, the, the pandemic has happened and there's been this resurgence of whether it be BLM, certainly the, the, the scope of, of queer voices coming uh, in, in, for the sake of rights and dialogue and all that. That is, that's what's deepened, I think, in, and again, in a mainstream level. So it allows us to look at, you know, this play within the contemporary lens that's, you know, although it is written 10 years ago, we're always looking at the play through through this that lens and it just sort of adds an extra layer of of impact um for us to be reminded of what it means to survive and hope and re-encourage our voices to take um you know to take flight mike how are you personally like working on a play like this does that does it do anything to you are you changed by working through something like this I'm always, yeah, yeah, Tom, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm just checking in on you, trying to make sure you're all right, no, no, you know? <laughs> no, 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 I appreciate that. No, I'm, to, um, you know, always, always. But like any great piece of theater, there's there's that openness to be inspired and to learn from not only the piece, but the process and the folks that bring it to life. I think there's a really deep ownership of this piece for all of the artists involved, from the creatives to the production and technical teams. And for myself, you know, uh, in building, essentially rebuilding a choir for this production, I'm deeply inspired by the five courageous uh, triple threat um, uh, performers that represent this this ensemble and this community of brotherhood. And it's reminded me what laughter and love um, can do for for uh, process, but also in life when there's a uh, so many challenges and so much navigation, of, you know, within the world that we live in right now. So it's it's reminded me to laugh. It's reminded me to look to the other and to um, sort of allow the wings of the of, of our communities, my community, to, to you know allow us to keep going, to allow me to keep going. That's so. Funny. We were just talking about that. I know, and I know you're with the Tarragon Theater. We were just talking to Yolanda Bennell. Yeah. About my sister's yeah. rage. And, and she said, uh, sorry, they said the, a very similar thing, that um, that it's it's 
when we're mired in in grief and trauma, the courage to laugh. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing. And like even in the spirit of Tarragon, you know, a couple of so far the the two shows that we put um, that we've uh, you know produced uh, or offered uh, this season have all have both been about that. It's like yes, there's there's lots of darkness in the world, and it's like we have we essentially have a choice. We can either succumb to that to that darkness, to that trauma, to that grief. Um, or we can find ways that, you know, to persevere, uh, persevere or work through it. And laughter is medicine, you know, I'll use Yolanda's words within that. And, um, and, and it allows us to, to move forward. It's not about, you know, uh, suppressing or repressing, uh, you know, our circumstances, but we're not driven by that. And so we need stories like this to uplift us and remind us of, of the power of laughter and love. And, you know, going back to this, overall value of empathy so that we can have a greater understanding of, you know, each other and certainly ourselves. I mean, I would add music to that in this context too, like laughter and love and music, right? Totally. I mean, music, uh, we, we often find ourselves in like isolated moments or, you know, when we're singing alone or something like even as, as minute as that, I think everybody has the opportunity to, or has the ability to sing and certainly has the ability to be moved by song. Because that exists in our life. It's, there's a rhythm in, you know, in the streets. There's a rhythm in our in our life, and sometimes we need to lean into that and just uh, let that wash over and actually, and succumb to that music and enjoy it. I mean, that's beautiful, Mike. This thing opens tomorrow, so I don't know how you have time to talk to us to, this morning, but I'm re- I'm delighted that you did. Hey, Tom. I'll, you know. Hit me up next time. It's anything for you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not you're not too stressed out about this thing opening tomorrow. You're doing all right. everything's well, on schedule. Well, well, I'll say tomorrow is actually the preview process. So you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday we're in previews, and it officially opens on Friday. But uh, so we're still in the mold of learning and bringing in the audience is going to be the next step of this process. And so I'm super excited. You sound very relaxed for someone who's about to open a show. Okay, yeah. Well, you know, talk to me tomorrow and we'll see how I am. <laughs> no, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. I think we all are poised and excited. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking it out. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Tom. You take care. Mike Payette is directing Choir Boy. It opens tomorrow and runs through November 19th at the Bluma Appel Theatre in Toronto. Mike Payette is the artistic director of the Tarragon Theatre. It'll be in Vancouver, British Columbia next season. We got some sad news here on Q last week that uh, Patrick Haggerty has died. Patrick Haggerty was the founder and lead singer of this band called Lavender Country. Now, Lavender Country, back in 1973, put out this record that turns out to be and is widely known as the first openly gay country music album ever. I think we have one of the songs. Take a listen. I'm back bit of Lavender Country with Back in the Closet again. Again, recorded in 1973. And right now, I mean, in country music, I don't know if you're if you're into country music, but 
It's kind of a good time for queer country artists, you know. Uh, Orville Peck in Canada, Brandy Carlisle, Amethyst Kia, Lil Nas X, um, the, the Brothers Osborne. But of course, back in the 70s, Lavender Country putting out an openly gay country music album was pretty revolutionary. I mean, they were singing about gay love and lust and heartbreak at a time of intense, systemic homophobia. And Patrick made that album thinking that that would be the only one. Only one album, and that's it. But then the album um, kind of picks up decades later. You know, audiences rediscover this album. Patrick kind of gets gets famous again. And um, Lavender Country earlier this year released their first new album in almost 50 years. It's called Blackberry Rose and Other Songs in Sorrow. And we were so happy that Patrick Haggerty came on the show to talk about it. And we were, again, so sad this week when we found out Patrick had passed. So, listen, I wanted to revisit a bit of our conversation. Before we get started, though, I do want to let you know, uh, just a heads up, our conversation does touch on suicide later in the interview. But here's my conversation with Patrick Haggerty. Congrats on the new record. How are you feeling? How are you feeling about it? Um, you want me to tell the truth? Yeah, yeah, tell the truth. <laughs> I, I'm sort of programmed not to spend very much time looking in the rearview mirror. And I'm always like um, looking forward. And we actually made... Um, Blackberry Rose, a couple of years ago, we made it ourselves. And uh, Don Giovanni picked it up, and uh, that's given it a huge boost. Having said that, I, I love the record. I think it's got some some real good stuff on it. Some of the songs are actually from the original Lavender Country era. Yeah, like I think, isn't this one? Just take, take a listen to this. Be glad to be one-shot pleasure, even if you're grieving at your leisure, babe. But I can't shake the stranger out of you. I mean, a big old favor for anyone who's a fan of that record, that's I Can't Shake the Stranger Out of You. So that was on the first record in 1973. That's the new version off the new album. Could you have imagined you'd still be singing that song now? I, I actually couldn't imagine any of the stuff that's happening to me. Uh, a lot of people um, resonate with that song. Uh, and I Can't Shake the Stranger Out of You is very personalized. Emotive on a, on a personal level, which is where I wanted to go when I wrote it. Um, the gay men are notorious for sexual objectification. And uh, that's really what the song is about from from my point of view, is how, how gay men sexually objectify one another while not being emotionally available. You said to me, I didn't expect any of this to happen. Uh-huh. I think the last time we talked about Lavender Country, about the first record, you said something to me like that, too. Like you said, I think wrote it down here. You said like your career was over before it even started. The recognition didn't come for that record right away. Tell me more about that. Well, here's how here's how that worked. In 1966, I got kicked out of the Peace Corps. 
because I got caught in a sexually compromising position and it was about being gay. And uh, that was a very rude awakening for me. And it put my, put my life on a different trajectory. The experience of being kicked out of the Peace Corps and me having to examine what was going on there turned me in from turned me from being a, an aspirant country music singer slash actor slash a middle of the world petty bourgeois democrat <laughs> into a screaming Marxist. And that transformation was fundamental. And it changed who I thought I was and, and what I was going to do with my life. So when Stonewall happened, and, and of course, everybody who came out during the Stonewall era was a radical, and it was a very radical period in, in history. Yeah. I, tran I transformed my mind, my political mind, into radical Marxist thought. And um, studied the roots of gay oppression from that point of view, and came to realize that the fundamental problem wasn't with me; it was with Wall Street, <laughs> and I wasn't the fault that Wall Street and um, capitalism and racism, sexism, and homophobia, and how they're all connected up with that were to blame for my being kicked out of the Peace Corps and that it didn't have any anything much to do with me. With you, yeah. Yeah, right? And so I had to make a decision. Did I want to go to Nashville and stay in the closet and pursue a career in country music like I, part of me really wanted to do? actually pretty badly or did i want to be a screaming marxist and um it was hard it was a hard choice and i committed my mind and my life to a, a lifetime of radical activism and lavender country was a reflection of that choice and when we made Lavender Country, we knew it had no commercial value. We weren't stupid. I made Lavender Country to foment social change. It certainly wasn't to get myself to Nashville because that wasn't going to happen. So um, that's why I made the album. I remember you telling me you didn't think anyone was going to hear it. Like you didn't expect that many people to ever hear it. When we, when we made Lavender Country, it was a product of the Seattle Stonewall movement. Yeah. And, and that's the movement that produced it and raised the money for it and the post office box and sold the album out the back door and blah, 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 blah. It was very much a, a Stonewall activist collective project. And the name of the game in the Stonewall movement was to to uh, be visible, yeah, to emerge out, to be a public 
beacon for gay rights because that was the name of the game. Like, don't hide in a closet, come out, be visible. That's what all of us were doing. Like, I've been iconized to, to hell and back. Yeah, you have. I Yeah, I really have been. But But here's what I'm trying to say about that. Everybody who was doing Stonewall activism in the early 70s were turning themselves into icons. That was the name of the game. Right. That was not the result of the action. That was the action itself. It was the action itself. And all of us were training ourselves to be beacons. Two things happened, and they coincided to produce the Lavender Country modern phenomena. One thing was... In 1973, the straight white men who were in the music industry couldn't afford to touch Lavender Country with a 10-foot pole. It may have resonated with some of them in some personal way, but they knew they knew they couldn't touch it. So they didn't. In the in the 45 intervening years, the straight white men in the music industry have dealt with their homophobia at a level where they're not bugged by the whole gay thing anymore. You know, their brother's gay, there's gay people on TV. It's incorporated into the mainstream culture. They're not homophobic like they were in 1973. And here comes lavender country. People in the industry are going, oh, this is, they can finally hear it and figure out what it is and get past a couple of the cuss words and the titles. And, yeah, and, and the technology changes so that it's not, it doesn't have to be mailed to me. Like, I heard it first when a friend of mine sent it to me on, on YouTube before the reissue. Like, you know, the technology changed too, right? The technology had an incredible amount to do with it. Yeah. And, and so... I mean, somebody put the song. I think you know which one I'm talking about. You can say it. Uh, okay. Somebody put Sucking Tears yeah. on YouTube. But you take it wherever you please. Don't rap the story. Tell me the glory. Scalahat Scallop is near. But your lies and they took it to a label, Paradise of Bachelors, not a gay label, and uh, somebody that specialized in unsung Americana and said, don't you want this? And I don't know anything about any of this going on. You're just home. I'm just, hey, I'm singing your cheating heart talk to generic. Yeah, right, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, and having a good time with it, I don't know anything about what's going on. Yeah, and right, and I didn't know it because I wasn't didn't do YouTube. And somebody else heard it. Yeah, a music aficionado in Chicago, not a, not a gay person. Yeah, um, heard it and said, "What is this?" And they went to eBay, another electronic thing, and they found one of my albums. 
uh, one of my 1973 album for sale on eBay and they bought it and they played it and they realized what it was. And then Brendan Greaves from Paradise of Bachelors called me yeah. and said, we want to reissue Lavender Country. Would would you be interested in a, in a record contract? <laughs> what? Are you selling encyclopedias? What? Who are you? Why are you on my telephone? And why am I highly suspicious of what's going on? And um, Brendan picked up on my suspicion mm -hmm. and he sent me a $300 advance. <laughs> and I, I took it to the credit union and uh, I knew the woman who worked there pretty well. And I said, you know, don't give me the don't give me the cash for this three hundred bucks until you clear this check yeah. because because it's, it's probably not going to clear and make sure that it's good. And she came back about ten minutes later and said the check cleared. You know, it's a good check. Here's your three hundred bucks. Yeah. And so then I went out into the car and I sat there for five minutes looking at the $300 and the, and the dam broke. And the years of telling myself that it didn't matter that Lavender Country was dead. Yeah. Um, and all the things that I wished for that I knew would never happen. Yeah. Um, all of those things came to the surface and flooded forth. And I went, <laughs> I burst into tears, right? Yeah. Oh my God, somebody thinks Lavender Country is worth $300. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. Really? So that was that experience. And um, little did I know that it was going to go way 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 well beyond the wounded box i mean what, what's what's striking to me about that story is and, and we can and i'm happy we talked about structures and i'm happy we talked about systems because i think we can often substitute personal narrative for conversations around structures and conversations around systems but that being said i sat down with orville peck about two years ago who looked at me and said, I heard you talking to Patrick about Lavender Country about a year ago. And I said, yeah. He said, that record changed my life. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Patrick and that record. I get it. I get it. There are systems at play here. And I get it in a capitalist system. There are going to be systems at play here. But I have to think that's meaningful to you. Of course. Um. I certainly appreciate Orville Packett's 
point of view and his support. Um, he's he's not he's not the first person to to tell me that Lavender Country changed their life. Yeah, I was doing a show in uh, St. Louis several years ago. Yeah, and uh, a transgender, very activist oriented, transgendered woman named Joss Barton came up to me after the show. And she said, I was going to kill myself tonight, but my friend insisted that I come to the show before I killed myself. So I came to the show and I just want you to know that I'm not going to kill myself tonight. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Whoa! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, inti intimate human contact doesn't get better than than that. Yeah, right? yeah. I said, I hear you. I, 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 I think that you write poetry, don't you? Mm. She said, Yes. I said, Can you sing? Yes. I said, Well, if you're not going to kill yourself, why don't you just join a lavender country show? <laughs> and she did. And she did. And I've done several shows with Joss Barton. And I'm going, uh, she, we're going on tour for a month upcoming uh, with uh, Paisley Fields and Austin Lucas and Lizzie No and Chet Holton and Molly Obamsawa. And, uh, and Joss Barton is going to be joining us for a week on the road. Man, man. That's a cool story, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, for someone who doesn't, I listen. I know you don't like to look in the rearview mirror, but my God, I'm so happy that you did. Can I just tell you something before we go? Here's something I noticed from your story: is that you told me Lavender Country came from the Seattle Stonewall community, the Seattle Stonewall activism community. And you were very clear that that was not just support. That was financial support. That was a P.O. box that was sending the records out. That was, that was of that community. And it's not lost on me that the new record, your first record in 40-something years, is also crowdsourced, is also comes from a community. What does that tell you? Well, it's a statement about who I am. That's, that's for sure. And... Um, the magic to, to the Lavender Country story and the Blackberry Rose album is that I'm getting to use the art form, music, to get my anti-fascist message out, my, my little Lavender Country and Blackberry Rose anti-fascist artistic material written to fight fascism and to foment social change. Um, it's working, man. It's working. <laughs> it's, wor it's working to a degree that I never imagined possible. Yeah. So I'm an icon, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, but I get to use that. Yeah. To foment social change yeah and and to use the art 
for the reason that I made it in the first place. Mm. And that's the motivation. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I really don't need bliss and glory. Yeah. I'm having, I had, I was having a very fine, lovely life with my husband before this, all that happened. Mm. And I'm still having a lovely time with my husband. <laughs> Waking up to say hip hip hooray, I'm glad I'm gay. Can't repress my happiness ever since I tried your way. Gonna lay right here and greet the sun, cause gate time nothing's just begun. So come on, let's tumble in the hay. That's the late Patrick Haggerty and his band Lavender Country with a song called Come Out Singing. You just heard a little bit of my conversation from Patrick Haggerty um, last year. Patrick died last Monday. We were so sad to hear it. He was 78. That is it for the show today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Tomorrow on the show, Alan Moore has been called the greatest comic book writer of all time. But a few years back, the guy who created Watchmen and V for Vendetta stepped away from his creations and from comics. In a rare interview, Alan Moore will tell you why he did that and how he found his new home writing short stories. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.